0: Welcome to Seafoodie, a podcast series that, through the lens of food, seeks to have a meaningful conversation about the important issues surrounding seafood and the complex system that gets it to your mouth. I'm your host, Chef Robert Jones, and I interview folks from all over the country who make up the fabric of our seafood supply chain. Those who farm it, catch it, sell it, innovate it, protect it for future generations, and make it delicious on your plate. We have an exciting show today. that uh, is apropos to start with a quote from Winston Churchill. In 1931, Churchill published a futurist essay that many people have forgotten about that included a number of predictions, but one really stands out. With, quote, with greater knowledge of what are called hormones, i.e. the chemical messengers in our blood, it will be possible to control the growth of tissue. We shall escape the absurdity of growing a whole chicken in order to eat the breast or wing by growing these parts separately under a suitable medium. In the intervening 90 years, authors and sci-fi futurists like H.E. Wells, David Keller, and Margaret Atwood have all made references to, quote, lab-grown meat. Uh, But it was largely considered sci-fi entertainment. But then something changed. In 2013, the world watched in wonder as a simple hamburger was grilled on a stage in London. Uh, But it was not simple at all. It was a burger grown in a Petri dish in a Dutch laboratory from the cells of a cow that was very much still alive. That uh, event sparked a space race of sorts in food technology. And seven years later, my guest today is the CEO of the company that very well may be the first in the world to go to the commercial market with cell-based meat. In this case, the cells of fish. Uh, please welcome to the show today, Lou Cooperhouse of the San Diego-based startup, Blue, Nalu. It's great to have you on the episode, Lou.
1: Well, thank you, Robert. I'm really excited to be on your show today. Uh,
0: so I, I want to spend a lot of time talking about the technology and the company, but I, I just, I'm fascinated to hear about you first. So did did a high school or college age Lou read Winston Churchill or Margaret Atwood and decide your destiny was to grow meat in a laboratory?
1: Uh, not at all, Robert. Um, it, 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 interestingly, my, my career, sim, however, has been all about food innovation and technology commercialization. And I uh, went to school actually for uh, microbiology and food science uh, at Rutgers University in New Jersey. Uh, my career started at Campbell Soup, and then ConAgra, and then Nestle, uh, but it was always uh, working in the company pioneering new technologies, new businesses, working across functional teams from an early age. So in the 35 years since that time, I've uh, you know, consistently been involved with uh, uh, commercializing technologies, initially around perishable foods like modified atmosphere, cooked chill, sous vide, high pressure processing, um, and subsequently got involved with uh, uh, the first onset of products for uh, medical nutrition, disease management, like celiac disease, diabetes, and really what I called oxymoron foods, creating foods that taste great, that people really miss, um, that bring together the culinary background and the food science together. Uh, and along the way, since since the year 2000, I've done a lot of consulting. Uh, but over that 20 years, I also started and um, uh, was the uh, founding director of a program called the Rutgers Food Innovation Center, an incubator for startups. And frankly, Robert, what I started to witness was a, a total transformation in our food supply chain um, as I saw consumers really shift uh, from eating foods that that I was very familiar with, that were convenient or healthy for themselves or nutritious, the foods that resonated with uh, with metrics around sustainability, um, and and where foods really were about making a difference personally and perhaps politically, uh, in, in in kind of resonating what your own values are. Uh, so I was really there on the, and I, I remember the twenty thirteen um, incident, if you will, in the Netherlands that sparked the first cell based hamburger. I said, oh my God, if you can make a hamburger product or any any meat-based product without the animal, that I literally call the holy grail. Yeah. Um, it would be totally transformative for the planet and is so so critically needed. And that really spawned my uh, interest in this whole category of alternative protein, uh, looking at both plant-based, but very, uh, as, as we'll talk more about, just totally excited about the potential for cell base and how that could be applied
0: specifically to seafood. That's really fascinating. Um, I want to come back to the the nuances of the technology in just a second. You, You touched on the shift that you saw working in the food industry where sustainability was ticking up the list of consumer priorities. Um, and, and I've, talked to a number of folks in this space at this point and that seems to be a really common thread is that most of these startups like yours are very mission driven um, about reforming the food supply chain i, I wonder if you tell the audience a little bit about why you feel strongly about that wh- why we need some sort of disruption in, in in our global food system like this
1: yeah i mean frankly robert i as i um as a if you will as a veteran of the food industry and uh very familiar with this space, I, I candidly really felt that one of the most vulnerable supply chains on our planet was our seafood supply chain. You know, you know just really being part of the industry in so many different ways over the years. And I say that meaning um, the demand for seafood, as you know, is at all time high. Consumers love seafood uh, and, and even the medical community is encouraging people to have more seafood at the expense of red meat you know, for the health benefits um all that is wonderful uh, and as gross domestic product increases around the world incomes increase um so too will come demand you know so what our problem as you know is is our you know diminishing supply chain um, but you know even moreover what's really critical especially in this uh, post covid world that we're in is the issue of food security um you know and and as i looked at it and you know kind of back to my comment about how vulnerable the supply chain is you know, with all the news that we have about, you know, acidification, warming oceans, and the potential impact and algae blooms and environmental disasters that that could have to our seafood supply, you know, it's it's extraordinary. You know, so the world needs, you know, as I started the company, the world needs a third solution, wild and farm-raised, need another solution to really help supplement that supply chain for the future. And furthermore, you know, unlike land animals, what really kind of captivated me about, working on salt-based technology for the seafood category was you also have other issues around human health. Mercury, number one, you know, pregnant nursing women that have, are basically giving warnings to have zero, one, or two to three servings, four ounce servings per week of seafood. And they frankly, back to consumers, they don't really know what, what tuna belongs to what category. It's confusing, you know, and, and our model is actually be able to make salt-based seafood that has no mercury at all. So as much as you want course, there's microplastics, you know, environmental pollutants that might be associated with your seafood, you know, and and uh, so it really kind of creates a demand-driven model versus today's somewhat supply-restrictive model of seafood. We could literally put factories manufacture seafood that's exactly the same as conventional products anywhere in the world, close to market demand. You know, not necessarily having to ship it seven thousand, nine thousand miles from. Southeast Asia to Eastern United States with a 30%, you know, loss of bycatch and a maybe 60% yield, you know, our product will be hundred percent yield, no head, no tail, no bones, no skin. So it really is a, you know, quite a game changer for the supply chain that we, you know, we feel is really quite, uh, can in fact be quite, you know, uh, disruptive to the industry and really frankly offer a number of benefits to the food service and retail customers around the world.
0: Well you evoked Margaret Atwood there with the uh, no head, no tail, no skin, no bone. so I think we'd better jump in and, and talk about how this happens so how, how does the technology work
1: yeah just just similar to the first example back in 2013, the concept is to um, extract cells from an animal and then propagate them in very large volumes. Um, there are different techniques for how this gets accomplished. Um, and and this is really something that's not made in the lab, you know. Although that is somehow erroneously, you know, what this category has been called. This is really no different than many other food processes. You know, I, I equate what we're doing to really growing this product, bit, if you will, in a microbrewery. You know, if you think about it, you know, you know, fundamentally, we're growing cells of of fish in large stainless steel tanks. The industry calls bioreactors. Um, the whole industry is still somewhat in its infancy right now, but we're not that far away from having product in commerce. But what commerce looks like is large stainless steel tanks that might have muscle cells in them, or fat cells, or or fibroblast, connective tissue cells that are independently grown in these large stainless steel tanks, then blended together in the same exact uh, uh, nutritional composition, analytical composition as conventional products. Uh, and we've actually did a demonstration less. Uh, December of 2019, um, where we actually showed that our product had the same structural integrity as conventional seafood. We did that with yellowtail. And our objective was, can a product heat the same, you know, can it brown, caramelize, freeze-thaw, gets steamed, you know, uh, deep-fried, any kind of uh, abrasive technology that might be used to cook product, or acidified, like you might find in kimchi or poke or ceviche. Um, a bit, also a bit of abrasive uh, condition for cells, but fish in general, um, or prepared raw. And sure enough, our product, you know, functioned and tasted and, and, and performed the same in all those characteristics. So we're on our way to actually manufacturing that product, but it really begins, uh, Robert, with kind of the fundamentals of getting cells to propagate for long periods of time. Um, they double and double and double, then we freeze them. And then you create what's, what's called a cell line, a cell bank. So we're, let's say it's a, it's, it's a bit of a, uh, a Darwinian concept of survival of the fittest, really getting these cells to grow to a very long time. Um, and then they become frozen down. And they become, if you will, an ingredient that then goes into this uh, future microbrewery uh, factory I mentioned, and that becomes feedstock for, for really um, producing what becomes uh, the actual fillets of, of, of seafood. So uh, there's an awful lot of technical processes in between that, but in principle, we're we're literally this process, as you as you may recall, was initially called in vitro. We're making the cells outside of the body, just like we're doing that with living human beings now, um, you know, in a different way, clearly. Uh, but we're in this case, we're making not living fish, but fish fillets, fish tissue outside of the body. So it, it's some some similarities to other things that you know humankind has done.
0: Um, but we're very excited that this is not that far away from being a commerce. That's uh, that's great. i mean, As part of my research on for this conversation with you, I just finished reading Billion Dollar Burger, um, mm. uh, Chase Purdy's book, and it. That's when it occurred to me that I think a lot of the original ideas around this started with medical advancements for looking at growing tissue and organs for humans for healthcare purposes. Um, and, Correct you know, incredible that it hopped over to to figuring out a way to feed us as well. And, and to your point, and I've seen these photos of the, these drawings uh, of, you know, what projected full-scale facilities would look like. And they do look like microbreweries, giant stainless steel tanks and in, in large warehouses. And to your point about the carbon footprint, instead of all of that being harvested on the coast somewhere and flown from Tokyo every day or you could actually build those facilities close to the population centers where there's the demand for the food
1: that's correct and I, I think that's from an environmental footprint point of view unfortunately nobody's been able to measure this just yet but but as as you know the um it varies uh across the globe species by species but you're right the the level of uh it, it is frankly you know the the seafood industry is, if you will, still quite biblical, you know, in the context that we're sending out boats with, with labor. Um, We're not catching, we're fishing, you know, we're, 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 you know, it's not the most efficient process. You know, if you think about it in that context, you know, with a fair amount of bycatch, which is quite unfortunate. Um, And uh, you know, you never know what your yield will be. And then we're flying those long distances only to be, you know, filleted at the food service level with maybe, maybe a weighted average of 60%. Could be 80, could be 40, um, obviously depending on the species. So all that gets replaced with this new 100% yield driven model close to market without all that transportation or the associated costs of labor uh, and fuel to actually capture the seafood. Of course, the animal suffering aspect is is certainly a big issue for many consumers. Um, And, uh, you know, so so it really, you know, that really resonates, you know, with so many positive benefits. And we, frankly, um, have really seen a great deal, even as as much interest as there has been in our company in the whole category, but in this uh, new, you know, new post-pandemic world, the issue of food security has really become, you know, even a much stronger opportunity that we
0: can address. Um, th- that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and I totally get the transportation aspect of measuring the carbon footprint in terms of inputs in this formula and i get the intangible for some consumers like animal welfare i'm curious about some of the other inputs that you would use to measure sustainability sustainability like the amount of water and energy that would be used as compared to what it would cost to farm or catch these fish wild do, do we know about that yet well fortunately we don't you know obviously uh, for a few reasons one is
1: uh both sides of the equation we don't know. I don't think we don't have a good handle on the control, if you will, uh, the current system and what that footprint looks like for, say, mahi-mahi or red snapper or bluefin tuna. Um, and as you can imagine, it varies considerably from one species to the next on the control basis. On on our on our uh, situation where we're manufacturing these seafood products and this demand-driven model, as I mentioned uh, we're still too early to even know what our usage of energy and water will be, but clearly, you know, yes, that will be higher on the one aspect, but the the offsets will be, you know, enormous compared to the current control situation, and again, will vary species by species. Um, at the end of the day, we're all about, you know, maintaining the biodiversity in our oceans. You know, we we you know, as as we heard Sylvia Earle and many others say, we need to keep fish in the oceans to preserve that ecosystem. So, so it's really about, you know, taking the stress off the oceans, you know, and, and how does one value that also? So, so, you know, there's so many different ways to look at this and it, it is quite challenging, but certainly welcome any of your listeners to, who have some opportunities to work together on really doing this uh, LCA and other measurements of sustainability to reach out because we're quite intrigued by how to measure that ourselves.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting you evoke, Sylvia Earle, obviously, a, a huge hero of mine and a lot of people who've worked on fisheries issues for years. And uh, on the biodiversity aspect, as consumers of seafood, most people around the world are not diverse at all. I mean, we, the vast majority of seafood that is consumed is, you know, salmon, shrimp and tuna. Um, I, I, from that point of view, I'm wondering what species you're looking at starting with and, and why you've made those choices.
1: A great question. We, we've actually, um, our company was very strategic from the outset. We, um, when I say that, we weren't necessarily driven purely by the science. Uh, you mentioned earlier that this technology began on the mammalian side, you know, with humans and intestines and, you know, and, uh, and, and obviously there's been so much work, you know, that has been conducted with other mammalian species. Uh, and frankly, the category began uh, on on million-based products like beef uh, initially, but we really began looking at the opportunity. Um, if you apply this amazing technology against a category where it could have the greatest possible benefit, we clearly said seafood for all the reasons we discussed. Um, but then within the category species, to your point, uh, we actually put together very early on, early on a species selection strategy. You know, what, there's literally so many different species that, you know, that we could prepare and you're right, you know, uh, consumers uh, certainly in the U.S. only know a few species for sure and there's so many delicious species that can be, can, can be prepared. So what we actually put together was this whole matrix looks at everything from per capita consumption of seafood, um, it also looks at, you know, what, you know, therefore, what kind of familiarity people have, but also issues like mercury, um, what species have the highest amount of mercury? Where a product we prepare could really be, you know, if you will, a bit of an oxymoron. You know, bluefin tuna without mercury, you know, is is something that could be quite, you know, really quite resonate. Uh, for example, um, but we also looked at issues like overfishing, illegal fishing, watch lists. You know, we looked at products that were imported. Um, so we're very uh, uh, or- oriented as a company about not competing with aquaculture or, or local industry. So for example, as a company, we're not working on salmon and salmon in this country, because you know, or cod, for example, because we do those those species very well. You know, the FDA, the numbers are all over the place, but the FDA has identified that 94% of the seafood consumed in America is imported. So we say let's focus on the 94%. You know, you know, not only can we have all the benefits we describe, but we also can build factories and create jobs. You know, and you know, so to answer your question, our first species that we're launching with is actually Mahi Mahi. Can't be farmed, um, you know, not very well because it's a very aggressive fish, as you I'm sure you're quite familiar. And and um uh and mahi mahi is something that you know Americans do know, but 80 percent is imported, I'm sorry, over 90 percent is imported, uh 80 percent of which comes from um uh Ecuador, Peru, and Taiwan, I believe. So so, so that being said, we can actually create a product that that is familiar to Americans. Obviously, it's familiar to people that go to Hawaii. Um, In California, it's quite familiar as well, and certainly the southeast, like in Florida. Um, So we're very excited to bring Mahi Mahi to market. But we've also developed um, Red Snapper, Yellowtail, and Bluefin Tuna. So we actually have four species that are currently under development. And it's a a long process to get product uh, through the whole cycle. Uh, but we're, as you can tell, we're specifically focusing on the target uh, of the category of finfish. So we're not working on crustaceans or mollusks at this point, um, but finfish have so many opportunities. And we're literally developing two new species per year. So we're literally putting together a library of finfish at this point so that we can really become much more of a supply chain solution, not a single species answer. And uh, that we feel will give us a significant competitive advantage to really Bring together a wide array of products and as we're working with restaurateurs you know that they're quite excited we've already had dialogue about changing out their entire menu Uh, so rather than just having cell-based single species let's actually do it in three or five different ways on on a given menu so anyway that's that's been our approach and it's been really well received
0: so let's talk about mahi-mahi for a second so just so people can visualize what you mean so starting with mahi what does the product look like is it are we, are we is this like a, a filet that grows is it is it a paste is it what what does the consistency look like of the final product
1: great question because uh, i'm sure it's very confusing to many of your listeners so uh, again it begins with those cells the muscle cells or the fat cells mahi mahi as you know is is uh is a very lean fish you know relatively white in color Um, primarily muscle cells Um, so so, uh, what we're what we're doing literally is is growing these muscle cells in large volumes for example Um, and the product does look a bit like paste but then it it forms these these tubules form the fibers form uh, within the cell matrix in a very natural way so we're actually not doing any genetic engineering we're actually working with muscle cells to create muscle you know, or fat cells to connect, to create fat. And we're not differentiating cells to be something they weren't designed to be, which is a very unique thing that we're doing. And we're also not using genetic engineering in our process. Also distinctive from some other companies in the space, uh, which, which have indicated they are using genetic engineering. Nothing wrong with that, but we feel that given how, you know, potentially different this is for the early adopters, we want to make, you know, make the bar as low as possible that, uh, Yeah, I would try that for sure. And that's really been a really positive response we have gotten. But yes, so the product actually, when it's formed on the production line in this microbrewery, if you will, it looks a bit like a microbrewery then connected to a traditional seafood processing facility. The product comes out after the process uh, into the filet or if it might be, for example, a cube. So for example if we're making a product that might be in the cube form that might be used in poke or ceviche that we can do we want to make the product in a fillet form maybe three four or five ounces that we can do right now we're not there yet on the fillet piece um, but we're our, our team will be working on that uh, over the next months uh, our first product will actually be more of a of a, of a three quarter inch cube whole muscle product um, you know so and we've actually already done some tests with food service operators uh, with great interest because the beauty of mahi-mahi is it's used in you know various parts of the menu as an appetizer as an entree um it's adaptable to be used in you know in a in a fish taco of course um or a ceviche poke um and and also even in soups and salads or or even on flatbread topping so so we're already excited to introduce this to really demonstrate here's a single introduction of product. it's all about getting the early adopters and really showcasing this in various menu applications. But then we'll migrate from, from that cube to the filet, and then we'll introduce other species on top of that, like bluefin tuna.
0: So at the, at the top, you chose your words very carefully and said you are looking to make a product to supplement um, the existing seafood supply chain, um, which is consists of aquaculture and farm-raised seafood and wild capture Um, that's notably different rhetoric than i've heard from some of the folks in the plant-based community and and i bring that up because sort of the next two phases that you've got to get through right you've got to finish your r d um, and go to scale and then you've got to get federal regulators to give you approval Um, and some of that involves some politics um, navigating because this is clearly an example where technology has outpaced the rulemaking and regulatory environment. I I assume that all of this we've got to figure out. So as you are having that conversation with federal regulators about how to manage this industry, are you seeing um, obstruction from folks in the uh, sort of incumbent industry, of uh, fishing industry?
1: We're not, Robert. And and to your point, I I do recognize that, you know, others in the plant-based category in particular have been very vocal about, you know, being frankly a bit opposed to the conventional agricultural sector. I come from that world. I formerly worked at Conagra and, and many, you know, you know. Uh, so I know this world, and I, I don't come from this really, uh, from from that perspective uh, as a um, uh, as you know as more of an activist, if you will. I come for this to really create a, a solution to a global challenge. And to your point, uh, this is all about working in collaboration with the seafood industry. Um, The consumers, as I know very well, love choice. You know, so we want them to have three options, wild caught, farm raised, and now cell based. In fact, we recently, uh, you know, last week, in fact, you might have uh, noticed that we uh, had some announcements come out about our work on nomenclature. We want consumers to know that a product is cell based and they have a third option. You know, we find this to be an advantage, you know, to those that are looking for a product that they might be concerned about when it comes to mercury or microplastics or whatever their issues might be. Um, and for those, uh, and we want there to be no confusion or misunderstanding that this product farm, this, this is not farm-raised, it's not wild-caught, it's just manufactured in this microbrewery, if you will. Um, we find what we're doing to be, you know, great advantage, but. We also want consumers to have that very informed choice. And and in our recent financing round, we actually uh, secured uh, funding from five different strategic partners, including Nutreco, uh, arguably the world's largest supplier of aquaculture feed, who's working together with us. Their whole industry is about uh, supporting aquaculture. They're very excited to similarly offer another solution to feed the planet in the years to come. That's what we're all about as well. And, and uh, we need a new solution, we can't be blind to that. But we also have to be very uh, realistic that the only way to get this product in commerce is through collaboration with partners. You know, we don't have, you know, we wanna get this you know, as quickly as possible to our consumers and we will not be creating our own sales force and distribution forces around the world. Instead, we'll be working with, you know, organizations that have those kind of relationships. You know, in addition to Nutreco, we also partner with Griffith Foods, another supply chain partner in the US, but also Rich Products in the US, which has uh, the brands uh, Mori Seafood and CPAC, and also Pomawan from Korea and Sumitomo from Japan. So, so we're all about you know, working collaboratively to bring our products to market and uh, with organizations that already have that infrastructure in place. You know, and, and that's, that's really key to our ability to move as aggressively as possible.
0: Yeah, and in, in the list of names you just mentioned, it struck me immediately that there's some cross-pollination in the leadership of those organizations with groups like the National Fisheries Institute, um, which is great uh, because it means that you have folks in the wild capture community who are getting acclimated to this idea and, and, and figuring out how it might fit into their portfolio and their businesses. Absolutely. Um, so let's go back to the conversation about federal regulation and navigating that because this is this is new and 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 it wasn't imagined when the original regulatory framework was set up to manage safety and health for food. So what does that look like as you work with the USDA and or Fda on setting up the rules to give you guidance and clarity about how to go to market and how to keep consumers safe.
1: No, it's a, it's a, it's a key question because uh, you're right, you know, except for a few years ago around the world in no nation was this product, you know, approved for, for sale and commerce. And what was really quite exciting frankly in the U S is that the FDA and USDA got together a little over two years ago. In, in a variety of public uh, meetings uh, and i actually was was attended the two that that existed one at fda one at usda uh, offices um, and at the at the at the level at the senior most level it was secretary uh, Purdue from usda and then commissioner Gottlieb from fda um, got together and brought in a team of experts and frankly you know robert you know told the audience that this is american innovation this is something that we understand um, it's it's what we don't understand is the specific processes that companies are using and what they also indicated and I had a chance to testify myself at these meetings um, as did many others what they didn't what they wanted to uh, internalize was how these products should be regulated for cell-based meat and poultry uh, because that wasn't really in the, in the wheelhouse if you will of the USDA uh, uh, you know, that that knowledge of the, of the scientific aspects of, of mammalian cell culturing. So they determined that FDA and USDA would jointly provide regulation for cell-based meat and poultry, and the FDA, which already has that expertise, would solely regulate cell-based seafood. Um, and they frankly encourage companies to come, in their words, early and often, please meet with us so we can understand how this works, what you're doing, and what differences might exist from one company to the other. And sure enough, you know, Blue Nala did just that. So we, we literally uh, have met with the FDA in person in the days when we could meet in person <laughs> um, you know, last year and, and subsequently via, via video call. Um, and they really addressed two kind of fundamental areas of focus. One is uh, food safety and one is food labeling. So I kind of mentioned just before that the, the latter about food labeling and they wanted to know, for example, um, how might this product be distinguished from conventional wild-caught or farm seafood? And that really implies what will be the common or usual name that will be used to describe this process. And I recently wrote about that on Medium also, but a common or usual name is something, you know, if this were breakfast products that we might enjoy, that's called cereal. Uh, if this product is a, uh, a, uh, an alternative to sugar it might be called zero calorie sweetener um so so you know that, that those are just some some nuanced words that might be a bit meaningless to consumers but it is a way to distinguish the product from the conventional product um, nonetheless so we just ca- commissioned a study on on that and we brought on a independent uh, researcher who formerly chaired uh, an fda task force bill hallman from Rutgers, to really uh, do a peer-reviewed study on uh, nomenclature. Uh, I needed an enormous methodology, talking over 3000 consumers, testing seven different names versus three controls and identified that cell based performed best neutral term, not derogatory, not that exciting. Um, but one that, you know, consumers got, they understood it. They, you know, so it's not wild caught, not farm raised. Um, it's something different. They didn't necessarily know what it was. Then we explained to them what it was. And they said, Oh, that makes a lot of sense. That does perform well. And that was really key to our research, that consumers knew the difference and they, they didn't find it to be uh, something they might misunderstand. And the other piece is food safety, as I mentioned. And so we've literally have provided that, that documentation to FDA uh, in full transparency, uh, exactly what we're doing, how we're doing it, um, even though we're still early in our process and we'll learn a lot over the next couple of years as we get further in our engineering milestones, um, but it's sharing our process gaining feedback, and it's an iterative process. That's what FDA wants. Um, tell me as much as you know, and we'll ask you more information. And we're literally comparing our product versus conventional, you know, mahi-mahi, for example, um, for all the analytical values, because we want to demonstrate that a product has the same nutritional composition and the same functionality, uh, meaning, taste, texture, uh, mouthfeel, etc. cetera. Um, you know, in, in every aspect, it really, uh, looks and is the same as conventional product so it's a, it's a long process but we're we're well
0: underway and and it's, uh, it's gone very well we need to take just a quick break to recognize our sponsors for the show but when we come back i want to pick up with the research uh, that you did with dr holman i watched that presentation at the, the ift conference last week and it was really fascinating we'll be right back
2: the american shoreline podcast network and coastalnewstoday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Revella. Check them out at LJA.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the
0: dunesciencegroup.com. Okay, we're back. I was. I, I'll, I'll put a link in in the in the in the show when we post it to your article on Medium about the research that you did with Dr. Hallman at Rutgers. I thought it was really fascinating from a couple of points of view. One is the level of transparency that you're um, putting towards this and and putting it right in front of consumers and getting their feedback about labeling. And I'm curious. And, and you tested sort of the derogatory terms like fake and schmeat and synthetic, and then Some of the terms that we hear from more of the animal welfare crowd, like slaughter-free and cruelty-free, but it sounds like what really resonated and was clear with consumers was the term cell-based, and and I wonder um, if you can shed a little light on the the results of that research and how people perceive that term and what kind of imagery it evoked for consumers compared to farm-raised or wild-caught.
1: At first, I, I want to acknowledge that we didn't test names that were derogatory, like lab-grown or slaughter-free, uh, or clean or or fake or anything like that, um, because one of the principles that Dr. Alma laid out was the term cannot be uh, derogatory towards one side or the other of the of the equation. It really needed to be the machable of the process, and that's really so. You know, part of the methodology that he put together was defining what are the just like we put together a species selection strategy for, for Lunalu, he put together kind of a nomenclature selection strategy uh, that he presented to the FDA as well. I see. So It can't; it, it, it has to be this type of a term. And he actually looked at some over somewhere between 70 and 100 different names that are out there in, in various forms that the media has used. And he discounted a great number of them. And he really found no methodology that anybody had done uh, globally to date um, that would be appropriate for a common usual name labeling. So in the context of that, Robert, what that means is you can't prime the consumer. You can't say, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Consumer, or Miss Consumer, um, you know, you know, let me tell you exactly what we're doing with this process. What do you think we should call it? You know, or, or using some analog of some other process. So that's priming. So what's really important is that a consumer see a package, no, no time to look, they look at, they just have to look at the label and understand, do I get it or do I not get it? I and, and when I say, I don't get it, what I also mean is, do I not think it's something else? So, so, so that was really the key to kind of get into the weeds here. So we actually came up with seven diff- different terms like cell based, cell cultured, cultivated, um, grown directly from the cells of cultivated from the cells of names like that. Um, that were uh and cultured and and, you know just compare those versus wild caught farm raised and no no label at all so if you will three controls and what we really found was that uh, a a number of the names uh, the names that performed the best frankly all had the word "cell" in them um because that was definitely something different and when you use the word cultivated or cultured it was frequently confused with as you would imagine, farm-raised. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the wrong answers went heavily towards uh, something that we didn't want to happen, which was farm-raised. We wanted there to be, you know, a, a clear distinction of what our product is not as well as what our product is. What we're very excited about Robert was we also had in there some questions about willingness to buy and wild did the best, but farm-raised and cell based did statistically the same. Um, so really, really exciting news that here, this is without being primed, even without any marketing backup, uh, Hey, Hey consumer, um, cell based seafood, you know, would you, what would be your willingness to purchase this in the next six months, farm race and cell base actually perform very similarly. Um, of course, Wildcott did the best, but that was very exciting for us too, that without even any edu- edu- education yet there's a great deal of interest in these products. So we're quite excited at um, not just uh, the nomenclature study, but also the fact that the consumer interest uh, did quite well uh, without any, any aid.
0: So you are navigating the regulatory environment. You're doing the research on what potential consumer uptake would be. Um, What's the timeline that we're looking at before we might see products in stores or restaurants somewhere?
1: yeah, great. thanks for that question because we're we're very excited to be literally uh, twelve to eighteen months away from having a product in commerce. So so we recently announced uh, 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 leasing a uh, almost a forty thousand square foot facility in San Diego. that'll be that'll house what we call. we have our internal language for five phases of growth. So this is what we call phase three. Phase three is the first time our company's in commerce. Um, earlier phases are more uh, more pilot scale and benchtop. Um, so what phase three is is frankly this mini factory and that's where we'll be uh, about this time next year in the second half of 2021. We will have uh, this 40,000 square foot operation up and running. We anticipate having the FDA pathway you know, clearly identified and all the documentation completed. Um, so yes, we'll be in commerce. Uh, that's our plan, the latter half of 2021. Uh, still small volume, Robert, you know, we're, we're only doing a several hundred pounds per week and it's not really meant to be a large scale factory because frankly, we have a lot to learn. Still, we want to really, you know, especially on the engineering side to get into manufacturing one species after the next. So a, a hybrid of R and D, but also a place to test market and get feedback. So it's a wonderful you know, platform to learn. Uh, and then that, that however, becomes the precedent for large scale manufacturing. So we're actually seeing our first factory breaking ground, you know, we think quite likely by 2024, possibly a year earlier. Um, So we're just a few years away from breaking ground on large scale production. And again, these factories could be located, you know, wherever populations are, could be Southern California, could be the uh, Northeastern United States, could be Seoul, Korea, uh, or Tokyo, Japan. So it really could be um, various places around the planet and that'll, That'll be in part, you know, based on how our partnerships work and kind of bring these products uh, directly to market.
0: So, 90 years to uh, the year since Winston Churchill uh, made his futuristic pronouncement about chickens. That's right. uh, Sounds like you guys are are going to be in stores or restaurants at least somewhere. Um, Do you? I I know there's a lot of people working in this space right now on beef, uh, like Memphis meat and Mosa and at Aleph Farms in Israel, um, and and several folks in the seafood community, uh, ranging from Singapore to, to San Diego. Uh, it looks like everybody's sort of in a similar space, but it feels like Blue Nalu is a little bit out ahead of the pack. Do you think you might be the first to market for cell-based meat? I, I'm, I'm pretty sure we'll be, uh, you know, we never know.
1: We, we're, we're excited by the whole category growing around the world. Um, we do feel we might be first to market with cell-based seafood. Uh, We might even be the first to market with cell-based anything in the United States because we're under FDA only. And the regulations might be a little more complex on the FDA USDA regulated products. I don't know though. Um, but that's not really, you know, our point is just to, uh, to really kind of market. We're the only one really working on this broad array of species at Mm. the, at the filet category where others are working more. And there's, there's so many opportunities for success. Uh, you know, across the entire whole protein spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are those on the poultry side working on chicken nuggets or chicken fillets. In our case, we're working on the, on the, on the, on the higher value fillet category and also the medallions and the dices, but it's a whole muscle product. Others are working more on ground and form products that might be used in, in, in cakes and dumplings and things like that. So again, there's, there's so many niches, some large, some smaller, but it's a huge industry as you know, um so there will be a lot of successful companies in the future and uh so we're just excited to to really you know ideally have a strong presence in the finfish filet category
0: uh at least during the initial initial decade so i i want to close out by asking you to put your futurist hat on uh so july 20th 2040 uh what is what does the world look like what does the global food system look like I really, um,
1: thanks for that question, Robert. I, I, um, I really, I I read the report by AT Kearney, which actually, uh, which is on our website on our resources link, but it's a study that actually talks about 2040 interestingly. And it, and it projects that there might be 35% global market share of cell-based proteins within all, all, all protein consumed you know, they're actually predicted that from the year 2025 to 2040, cell-based proteins will grow at 41% annual growth rate from frankly a base of zero all the way to getting 35% global market share where plant-based products will grow at 9% annual growth rate representing 25% global market share. Uh, And conventional meat frankly becomes unconventional and goes down to 40%. So you have 35, 25, and 40. So what we're, 2040, uh, the answer to your question, consumers have three choices, all of them will be somewhat equally distributed. Uh, And some products, frankly, you know, take for example, a ribeye steak, you know, on the cell-based category, it might be very challenging to to develop. Um, So perhaps the conventional products will be the one that, you know, really, you know, still is the most highly sought after. But in the case of fillets, we think that um, we'll have a, a significant proportion of that category. Particularly as demand increases, you know, again, we need a third solution, um, and many species may become unavailable, um, or God forbid, you know, due to environmental issues between now and twenty and forty, um, you know, some species might become unavailable altogether. We might actually be able to dominate some species that otherwise may not, other, you know, exist. So the world sadly will change in the next twenty years, and we're prepared to have that third option for consumers.
0: Well, I am. Personally, really looking forward to having my guilt free uh, bluefin poke bowl. That's so, good. if you could move that up to the top of the list, I'd greatly appreciate it. <laughs> uh, Lou, I can't thank you enough for taking the time today to, t- to talk to us and tell the listeners about this incredible new technology and really how close we are to it being a reality. Um, and tell, tell everybody how they can find out more information about Blue Nalu. Yeah, Again, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Um,
1: yeah, our, our website is uh, www.bluenalu.com. It's B-L-U-E-N-A-L-U.com. Nalu, by the way, is the Hawaiian word for WAVE, kind of where the company got started. And Hawaii being the center of the Pacific, it's, it really resonates with what we're trying to illustrate here. It's all about, you know, the world is all about seafood. Uh, now was all about a new wave of thinking. So, so uh, you'll, you'll find a great deal of information, you know, on our press section, news section, and resources section. And we're happy to connect with uh, any of your listeners. So thank you.
0: Great. Great. Thank you again. All right, everybody, that wraps us up for this episode. We appreciate you listening and uh, we'll catch you on the next one.